Hello, everyone. This is Artemis with the Uncivilized Podcast. This is the second part with David Lauterwasser. In this part, we get a lot more into delayed return hunter-gatherers. Uh, I would recommend you listen to the first part where we kind of dive more into David's background, his understanding of permaculture, his application of that as he lives in Thailand, and we begin to get into delayed return hunter-gatherers and his understanding of those types of subsistence strategies, a particularly kind of like primitivist critique of them and how he thinks that uh, delayed return is actually kind of misunderstood or demonized in a sense. So I really recommend that you go and listen to part one and then follow up with this episode. I hope you enjoy. Okay, let me ask before we get any further into the discussion, two yeah. kind of preliminary questions that help, might help people that haven't listened to other episodes or don't fully grasp everything is... How would you define immediate versus delayed return? And, and for you, do you use simple and complex interchangeably with those terms? And then where's the line between a delayed return hunter-gatherer that has some intensive, more or less intensive relationship with an environment and like in a horticultural thrive or society? Because I know, again, like we're kind of with the wildness domestication the lines yeah. between some of these things can get really blurry because it's there's no always hard and fast rules because we're talking about human societies, which will always be in some way or another too complex exactly. to generalize. Yes. Yeah. For me personally, I must say that I don't even care that much about the exact differences. So obviously immediate return is you go out there, you find some food, you eat it either directly or in the next few days, right? You don't invest work into something that you will harvest or eat only a while later now that is that is what immediate return implies to me it's pretty much from the hand into the mouth or however you put it in english uh, and so with delayed return societies you do an investment like you put in work right now uh, and you might just reap the harvest or eat the dried fish or whatever we're talking about in a few weeks or a few months um, so there is this huge delay in time where you start thinking in different time scales as well. And you start like your your mindset changes a little bit, I think, from immediate return to delayed return because you got to think about the next season nah, uh, a lot more detailed. You got to ration eventually uh, what kind of food you have left from this big period of abundance. And you so have to, yeah, but maybe, that, and may, if if I can respond to that, kind of going back to yeah. come in, and you know, I'm not as knowledgeable about delayed return, and maybe I I'm making a misconception, or maybe this is my Pacific, my understanding of the Pacific Northwest is yeah. putting things putting things under lock and key, right? Just yes. some of those, yeah, right. I'm I'm sure it depends again the variability. Some will do that more than others, but that also might mean you have to defend or you have to decide this is mine, this is yours. Right. There yeah, that is some of that ownership. Yes, that is a very, very interesting thought, and it is worth discussing that for a second because you are completely right. Uh, what what Quinn defined as uh, nah, a civilized society or a society on the step towards civilization is pretty much this: uh, the food is under lock and key, right? And I gotta ask right quick, just because I, I'm not, I don't know a lot about them, but the Pacific Northwesterners were was the food under lock and key though. I think it really depended because you had the potlucks. Okay. So, oh, yeah, I remember that. So you had to define this. This can only be eaten 
at this for the festival, right? So like some yeah. things would have been under lock and key, but other things were not, right? So not okay. all the food is, but it also depends who are you growing for. The way I would almost imagine, and I could be wrong, is yeah. if you think under like Western European feudalism, right? You have people yeah. that grow for the Lord and then people who grow or harvest for themselves, right? I yes. almost imagine it's something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, again, it is a huge difference what we have here in Southeast Asia, right? Because uh, among most of the delayed return societies that I talk about right now, um, no no food was under lock and key. The food is in the garden. You can go and dig it up and eat it if you want to. Now, it's not like anybody is guarding the granaries or stuff like that or rationing and giving out food to other people, right? It's What we have here is, for the most part, not like that. I do have to say right quick, just uh, to show that it's not all black and white, some of the so-called hill tribes, especially the Karin and the Shan, they in the past they were pretty civilized at some at some points. Like they built little their tiny little empires in the jungle, and they had their their kings and princes for a while, but it didn't last, you know. Because uh, now, as we know now that we have read this incredibly confusing book, The Dawn of Everything. They do have a few good points, and one of the points is that human cultures can move back and forth on the spectrum between egalitarianism and authoritarianism, right? And so that's what happened here, definitely. But if we look at the bigger picture, uh, and we include all of the the hill societies, then uh, they are they they are not societies that keep their food under lock and key, not at all. They they do. As I said, shifting cultivation, which means basically you clear a piece of rainforest and uh, you burn it. Uh, now, burning, that is, it, it. people have this very bad image of slash and burn. You know, they see the, the, the stuff on television where there's just the Amazon is burning and it's not like that. No? Slash and burn, if you do it right in the traditional way. You have to be very precise with the day on which you do the burning. You have to look how long ago did it rain because you don't want the inferno that destroys everything, right? It's good to have a little bit of charcoal, for example, because it's really good for the soil. That's how, among many other things, Terapreta del Indio was created. Charcoal is really important as an ingredient. So they mm. do clear the land and they burn it and then they have all that ashes and all the charcoal laying around on the soil which provides like the initial fertilizer boost and also i'm not sure i don't i don't want to get too deep into gardening stuff because that's not the audience usually but the ph of the soil in the jungle is pretty acidic which means that mm. many of the annuals and many of the vegetables don't like it that much and ashes happen to be very alkaline so if you have ashes on the ground and it rains the soil, the soil pH is balanced and you can grow like regular vegetables. So after they clear the land, what they do nowadays still in many places and what they have done historically is that the first crop is often rice, um, which is a uh, grain, as everybody knows, which is the original fuel of civilization. But somehow, even though they grow rice, they don't become civilizations by default. So they, they find some way around it. So the first year they grow rice and the second year they still grow, they still grow some rice, but then they uh, diversify planting. Even in the first year, it's not a monoculture, but they plant all kinds of stuff 
among the rice. Now you have like cucumbers and eggplants and all kinds of stuff growing in between. Um, a lot of tubers, né? like taro, yams, or cassava, uh, manioc. I think that's how people call it in the Americas. Um, and so they they do with with this method of agriculture or horticulture, uh, you do produce big surpluses um, because it's just you 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 use very very little labor and you get so much return from it, right? So it works. This kind of farming or this kind of gardening works with ecological succession, right? If you would imagine a piece of forest uh, that gets devastated by a wildfire. What would happen first afterwards is the grasses would come up. That's the first stage of ecological succession. So that's your rice. Uh, rice is a grass, right? It's an annual grass. So that's the exact ecological niche for this plant. The plane where you can plant this plant and you don't have to fertilize or do all kinds of other stuff, weeding, plowing or whatever, because that's exactly the place in ecological succession that the rice really likes. And so as ecological succession continues, you have small shrubs growing and slowly nah, spending more and more shadow and overshadowing the annuals. And then you have like a little forest emerging. You get the secondary forest. And so what those hill cultures do is they work together with ecological succession. They say, all right, so, but if the forest is going to emerge, why don't we just put a few seeds here and there of the fruit trees that we really like to eat? And then in the end, we will have a forest that just has a higher density of fruit trees, for instance. And over time, that does create uh, ecosystems that look a lot like actual forest, but that were probably someone's garden like 20 years ago or 50 years ago. And so you still have the durian trees, you still have the wild mango trees, you still have the rattan and the bamboo that you use for weaving and all that stuff, right? So they move around, they do... Uh, they they clear a new patch of forest every year or every two years, and then they just let it rewild. And as the land, their former, their former Swidens, as as it goes through this rewilding process, they just nudge it a little bit more in the direction of oh, produce a little bit more food, will you? Yeah? Uh, plant a few seeds here and there just to see what happens. And so, um, it is. In itself, it doesn't. It doesn't have this agricultural. This oh, I am the big dominator, and I manage the land, and I just break the soil, and then I do whatever I want with it. But they look at how does how does the environment itself work, uh, in which direction does it go, and then they try to move along with it, and it works pretty well. Um, so about the food being under lock and key what we have here in southeast asia is what james c scott has called escape crops you're probably familiar with the art of not being governed right i ha i am i haven't read it but before you get into that i just want to ask a clarifying question of course um so what is the relationship so far just for the sake of kind of following the illustration or narrative you're putting here what is the relationship yeah. between that um, that kind of slash and burn agriculture in these um, delayed return hunter-gatherers. Do they practice this kind of slash and burn? Um, right now, they still, they still practice it, yes. They still clear land uh, and they use fire uh, and then they plant crops in it. And that is throughout the tropics. If you encounter people who are not civilizations, 
who don't grow grain monocultures, who don't have their food under lock and key, like also many of the uh, South American societies, the Kayapo, the Yanomami, the Atuar, um, in the past, even more societies than that, uh, they do slash and burn. They cut patches of forest and they burn most of the vegetation. It's like, it's also, they don't clear the land. It's not like this purification of just a complete new start. But if there is one tree growing in the middle and that happens to be a very delicious fruit, they are very careful to leave that tree standing, right? And even if there is like some areas in your Sweden where there is some useful plants, you don't want to burn just everything, but you you really work with the land and try to, uh, you have an impact, which is, uh, if you want to call it natural, I don't have a problem with that because forest fires occur in nature. Nah? Big trees fall down every now and then in the jungle, creating this gap in the canopy where other species have a, have a, a place to grow. Elephants, by the way, elephants do pretty they, they do quite a lot of damage right when we have elephants walking through here the next day we can just walk straight through the jungle it's like a highway no? they they do destroy no? they do rip out trees they do push over trees and that has ecological benefits now because it rejuvenates the system now it creates those mm -hmm. edges in the ecology where and you have to have so some you have to have some damage that can allow for the succession that you're talking about right I just guess some of my confusion is we're talking about hunter-gatherers, right? But then we're yeah. talking also about, for a lot of better word, this agricultural, horticultural practice. So are these yeah. hunter-gatherers engaged? Can a, can someone, can a group of people be hunter-gatherers but engaged in horticulture? And where does that line? I guess it comes back to the, are we able to draw lines? But to me, I yeah. know some people, I think when they think delayed return, or complex yeah. hunter-gatherers. They're, they're sedentary. They're not necessarily doing a lot of agriculture. They yeah. might do passive cultivation, but this sounds yeah. very intensive. So yeah. are they truly it, still hunter-gatherers in this situation? So all of the all of the hill tribes, again, I'm talking mostly about the time before the Second World War, but I'm quite sure that's right. still the case, that all the hill tribes still hunt and still gather. It is still an important part of their culture, of their diet. Um and so if you hunt and gather, that doesn't necessarily makes you a hunter-gatherer, right? But I think we we gotta we gotta uh, dive a little bit into James C. Scott here, the art of not being governed, because he has this great example for it. He says that if you have like a mountain, then you have different stages of uh, now on, on top of the mountain, you will have people who are more like actual hunter-gatherers, and the lower you get the more you have people who rely on one form of horticulture or another. And then in the valleys, you have the valley civilizations, the rice, you know, the rice growing areas who do you know, wet rice cultivation, paddy cultivation. And then you have like a big city in the middle that claims to be the best in the entire world and you know, descendant from the gods. And so okay. you have, as, as, as you said, now it's not that easy to just draw a line because you would have to draw many lines. And uh, the, the hill cultures that used to live on the lower rungs of the mountain historically, like the Karen and like the Shan, for example, um, they had slavery here and there. Um, they were enslaved by the, valley uh, by the valley states, but they also went on slave raids themselves sometimes. And the higher you go up in uh, on 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 the mountain or into the mountains, because it's not only altitude, it's also distance, right? 
the more or the closer people are to the actual hunter gatherer existence um <clears throat> so i don't i don't necessarily think that it matters too much to say who is hunter gatherer and who is not hunter gatherer like for me for example the yanomami are hunter gatherer and the the kayapo the atuar they are hunter gatherers because they hunt and gather and they also have a garden next to their house right, right. Uh, with them it's mostly the women uh who who do the gardening in in south america um and the men go hunting that's usually how they divide the, the the work right here in southeast asia it's a little bit more balanced men and women working together but also generally you have women doing more of the like field work rice harvest for example this kind of thing it's uh, more the women but the they do it, it there is less difference between the genders that's what i'm trying to say here in southeast asia and slash and burn and ecological succession and all that stuff it sounds like a really intensive way of doing farming um but actually it's not now because it's really it is it takes very 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 little work to to grow crops like this because you don't need to till the soil you don't need to fertilize you don't need to water you don't need to do weeding many of the weeds are encouraged because they're really useful we eat weeds all the time here in our garden um so it looks intensive and it sounds intensive but actually it's not that much work right uh, most of the work is just putting a few seeds in the ground and then you wait and then you just harvest. So it is pretty much, um, it is closer okay. to hunting and gathering than it is to uh, Proper agriculture. agriculture. Yes. Okay. And so really, so if you, you, if you come, would you, yeah. would you consider, because I meant to ask you about this earlier, the yeah. idea of Daniel Twins totalitarian agriculture. So would yes. you consider this i'm assuming you consider it horticulture this kind of slash and burn style that we're talking yeah, about exactly would you consider this to be outside of what quinn talks about with totalitarian agriculture this is distinct from that definitely most okay. definitely yes that is a completely different thing totalitarian agriculture i use this term a lot uh because it is a it defines very well like the intentions behind monocropping behind saying this is a diverse ecosystem and i'm just gonna raise it to the ground and then I plant only my own food and I'm not going to share it, it with anybody else. I will make it in my own image as almost a exactly. godly, as a godly yes. act. Yeah. Yes. And so that is not what happens during traditional slash and burn or swiddening agriculture, right? Those people, they don't, they, they say, oh yeah, in a few years, there's going to be a nice forest again and all the animals are free to eat whatever they want. Uh, so it is just yeah, it is it is a different way. It's, it it doesn't really fall anywhere neatly on the spectrum of immediate return versus delayed return that we imagine. But so the thing, another thing that is worth mentioning maybe is that here in Southeast Asia, I have the numbers uh, for hunter gatherers. The population density is usually somewhere between. Uh, okay, now we get to the, the statistics are really stupid sometimes, but zero point five people per square kilometer. <laughs> Uh, is like the lower limit and five people per square kilometer is the upper limit for hunter-gatherers. And so with shifting cultivation, with slash and burn, you have population densities of around 20 to 30 people per square kilometer. That seems to be like the upper limit of what is sustainable. And uh, that is still very, very low when you compare it even to earlier agricultural societies, like societies that practice totalitarian agriculture.
right? Because all the valley states that are so busily growing rice and their and their flooded paddies, um, rice itself doesn't really make that much sense to grow, right? Because it's so much work to cultivate those fields. You got to till them at least twice a year and then planting every individual rice plant and the harvest also it takes a long time. So it doesn't really make sense in terms of how much work you have to spend and the return that you get. But if you cultivate rice like the valley civilizations did historically here, it is the highest return per unit of land. Nah? So if you have this amount of land and you just want to produce the maximum amount of food, then you do wet rice cultivation. And that's what the civilizations here did. And that's what the hill tribes don't do, right? They do plant rice, but uh -huh. only the first two years. They eat rice, but not only. They also eat a lot of tubers, nah? the, the stuff that, uh, that, that James Scott, he calls them escape crops, right? Uh, that you could just leave in the ground for a year or two or three uh, when we're talking about cassava. And then you can get, just come back and pull them out of the ground and eat them, right? And if the tax man comes, it's very difficult to assess how many potatoes are underground. Now the tax man, he can look at the rice field and be like, all right, is this and that many hectares? So you're going to harvest this and that many tons. So I will come back in this and that many weeks, and then I will get my share of the harvest and bring it to the king. But if you are in, if you're standing in front of a Sweden uh, of those hill people, and you just have this massive diversity of different plants, like vines scrambling through the undergrowth, and a lot of them are weeds, so people don't even know necessarily that they are edible. So it's just you you don't even have any idea what what is going to happen. Right? Like how how much how are you going to pay taxes with this? Right? It's a uh, it's this this way of farming is designed to prevent civilizations and strong dominance hierarchies from arising. Né? It is designed to try to evade uh, and trick the civilizations in the valley as good as possible, right? So mm -hmm. this is one of the reasons why I have a huge problem with this idea that delayed return hunter-gatherers are now already one step towards civilization because here in Southeast Asia, they've been living on the mountains and they've been looking down at civilization and they didn't go down and live with them. They didn't try to build the same thing in the hills. They were like, they are doing their thing down there and we don't like it. We don't like how those people live. They have such a, they depend so much on slave labor, for example. Now there's so much hierarchy and codified rituals and stuff like that. We don't like that, so we just do our own thing. And so it is kind okay. of, it gets into this territory of uh, schismogenesis, schismogenesis, I don't know how to pronounce it in English. <laughs> mm -hmm. That basically, right, they, you have you have the, the valley states and you do your own thing because you don't want to be like them. So you get maybe even more egalitarian the more they in the valley get authoritarian. And so that, that gets that gets pretty extreme sometimes. Now, one of my favorite examples is of the Lisu people, one of the, the hill cultures here. They have historically lived pretty high up in the mountains, so they they didn't enslave other peoples. They relied a lot on hunting and gathering because the higher you are in the mountains, the more difficult farming becomes as well. And so the Lisu, they had this excellent idea, this, this rule in their culture, basically. They had pretty flat hierarchies like they had a village headman or something like that but if the village headman became too ambitious or started bossing people around 
they would kill him in his sleep without even warning him before. So, and that just that, imagine how useful that is in preventing like those little pity tyrants from emerging because you know, if you're going to be the village leader, you got to be really careful not to piss off the wrong people because otherwise they're going to stab you in your sleep. They just took the leveling system or the leveling mechanism to a whole new height with that one, huh? Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly the same thing, just in a more direct fashion and in a way that you can still have some kind of little hierarchy in the village, right? It's if we're talking about South America for a moment. Um, you have Davi Kopenava, for example, whom you know, maybe the very famous Yanomami shaman and indigenous leader who, mm-hmm. who who authored this great book, The Falling Sky, which is basically just a recorded conversation or a recorded monologue by this Yanomami shaman. And you can ask yourself, like, is that guy the boss of the Yanomami? In, in the, does he have any real power? Can he command them around? He's obviously the dude with the big belly, so he eats pretty well. He's obviously the one that leads certain kind of rituals and that people definitely have a lot of respect for. But he, I don't believe that this guy has the power to just force people to do something that they don't want to do. And that is actually apart from maybe, I don't know much about them, but apart from maybe the Pacific Northwesterners, that is pretty much the norm for many of the delayed return hunter-gatherer societies that rely on horticulture to some extent, that you do have some kind of headman, but this guy doesn't really have that much actual authority, right? He's more like a mediator in meetings, for example, more like it's it's not it's not a it's not an easy position. It's not necessarily like you sit in your house and people bring you food, but it can be really complicated to try to you know uh, mediate between two different sides in a conflict, for example, or try to deal with this fucking tax man that comes from the valley again, and now we have to give him something. That reminds me of the anthropologist who's now who now's name I'm going to forget. In Society yeah. Against the State, he talks about like the chief. Pierre Clasquies. The there it is. Thank you. And how he talks about the chief is like, it's all in his ability to mediate in his 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 conversational ability, right? How do you exactly. relate to other people and how do you mediate conflict? Exactly. Yes. So that Charisma, I think he was, he, was, yes. he was referring to more immediate, more quote-unquote simple uh, hunter-gatherer groups, yeah. but obviously that it's, it's probably even more more of a yeah, case yeah. in these more exactly uh, delayed yes and that's that's what you find a lot of the time the people who are in leader positions they are very charismatic and usually the people they choose to listen to them they choose to follow their lead uh as as far as they want because it makes sense because those people are experienced or nah, know best know what's best in that situation so it's not a, hier- a hierarchy is not a hierarchy. There's, again, many different things. It's a huge spectrum. And so on one end, you have like the dominance hierarchies where you have Elon Musk and John Bezos, uh, Jeff Bezos or whoever this that guy is called. Like, And on the other hand, you have people like Davi Kopenawa. Né? So it's, yeah, it's not that it's nothing is that easy. So one more quick thing that I forgot is the 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 simple and complex thing. I don't use this terminology ever at all because... Uh, some of the hunter-gatherer societies that are called or that are labeled simple, they are quite complex once you look at it, right? You have, like, 
Uh, those totemic systems that you had in North America and Australia, they just span entire continents where you, you are a member of the bear clan. So you walk a thousand miles in some direction. And if there is somebody who's from the bear clan who doesn't even speak your language, then you're buddies, right? You can sleep at his hut. And so even relatively simple hunter-gatherers have really complex things going on, right? If we look about, uh, if we look at the, the Kung San and the Kalahari Desert and their kinship system and the friendships that they maintain over, I don't know how many hundred miles and how many generations, they look quite simple to us, but there is so much hidden complexity that you only really discover after learning a little bit more. Yeah, and I guess like people. a lot of that too is rooted in like again the Western anthropologist bias. And it's like, what do you yes. mean? Like what is simple? What is exactly. complex? What like exactly and, and again and it, with the I'm also reading uh Dawn of Everything. And I guess I had a, I want a few more questions on the on the delayed return and then I want to start wrapping this up is yeah do these delayed return hunter gatherers with when when David and uh, Graeber and Wingrove kind of talk about the seasonalism, the seasonal social structures. Are yes. we seeing some level of that in these delayed returns? Obviously, we're talking about very various groups of people, but generally speaking, what does the seasonalism look like for these people? Yeah, uh, raining season in the tropics is for the most part pretty laid back, actually, because if you have the crops in the ground, then you just got to take a short walk around and harvest some stuff, and then you have lunch. That's what we do currently. Um so there's definitely a big change in seasonality, but again, it is uh, it is all so complex those topics, right? Uh, because Graeber and Wengro they talk about this thing that people like come together in larger groups for one part of the season to do some kind of group activity, and so with the delayed return societies that we have here, the traditional societies, they don't move around that often or that much. Right. So they have cycles of they move more or less every two years or every five years. Right. Uh, in South America, you have societies that move every 10 or 15 years. It really depends on nah, a different. Yeah, so it's not, different season, it's not seasonality in a strict sense, like summer to winter. No. It's, we're talking more yeah. annual, you know, decades even. Yes, exactly. Okay. And I mean, life changes, right? People, they go visit friends and relatives much more often in dry season, obviously. And raining season is usually more, it's a little bit like winter and the temperate climates. We often have this comparison going on because we sit around doing nothing in particular for a lot of the time during raining season. And that's also mm -hmm. what Scott talks about, right? That he, in raining season, also many of the, the value stays, they just couldn't send so muddy everywhere and the rain is really heavy in in the tropics right so many of those big empires glorious empires they shrunk a lot during the monsoon i think what he says is that uh between a fourth or an eighth of their usual oh, wow. size like pretty much with confined within the walls of their city or wherever those people were living right and mm -hmm. so there is there is this seasonal back and forth but uh, I'm, I'm actually I'm unsure how it affected the hunter-gatherers here because I don't think that it affected them that much. I mean, okay. generally, hunter-gatherers don't like moving camp too much when it rains all the time. That's a pretty much a cross-cultural yeah. universal. I know that it's not quite conducive to good movement when, especially if you live in the fucking jungle, right? The mud. Yes. And, yeah. Oh, <laughs> it's terrible. The mosquitoes, the leeches, and all that. It's not. Oh. It's not the best time to just go traveling around. 
Um, but even like in South America, the Thoi people, uh, the ones that have this wooden piece in their under their lip uh, as a body ornament, they they hunt and gather a lot and move around a lot during the dry season. But once the raining season comes, they settle down around cassava plantations and they just uh, when they're hungry and they it rains too hard and you're too lazy to go hunting, so you just pull up a bunch of cassava roots and you just eat them. So there's definitely that seasonality, but I I try like what what Graeber and Wengro try to make out of it like this general rule. I just don't see how that's ever the case because what we're talking about is so complex, right? There are so many different spectrums, spectra where people or societies fall onto, and so it's very difficult to like really make those rules. Gotcha. So... Interesting. So I guess the kind of the last question, maybe second last question is what should people take from, you know, we're talking about a lot of things, some of the things we're going very quickly through, you know, we spent a lot of time on permaculture, uh, that because yeah. some primitivists don't quite know what to make of it. Now we're talking about these kind of delayed return hunter-gatherers that are engaged in some type of yeah. horticulture, horticulture. What do you think, what do you think primitivists, you know, well-read, not well-read experience and experience should take away from kind of what you're saying about them and what what should they should there be a shift in perspective? Should there be a growing nuance about the issue of, about those two particular issues? What do you think? How should primitivists approach yeah. those topics? That that would be very nice if there would be just a little bit, like a little shift in perspective. Yes, just accepting the ambiguity a little bit more and seeing that there is a lot more nuance to it than people initially thought, right? Um I think that it is very harmful to just downright reject any form of plant cultivation, because if you look at it in practical terms, right, we've talked about this earlier, you cannot just walk into the forest and become a hunter-gatherer. You need to go through some kind of transition phase. And me, my wife and I, for example, we have no, absolutely no intention of becoming immediate return hunter-gatherers in our lifetime. We simply can't. We don't have the cultural knowledge. We don't. We don't have the ability to do that in our lifetime because it takes so long, right? It would be our grandchildren's generation, maybe. Nah? Uh, it all also depends on the climate, of course. It's another huge topic that we didn't even talk about yet. Um, but I just think that it makes sense to look at it at a spectrum and to say, all right, so let's slowly move from one end of the spectrum towards the other end of the spectrum. And we don't have to all arrive at the opposite extreme but we just see wherever we feel comfortable and if that's closer to the middle of the spectrum then that is all right because there are massive differences in agriculture versus horticulture or permaculture right agriculture is the one extreme totalitarian agriculture being like the probably the most extreme end which includes of course industrial agriculture and all those atrocities um but the middle of this spectrum is you find a lot of like if you actually go and you look at how those people manage how they how they work how they live their lives how they plant how they uh, nah, the the methods that they use you realize that this is not at all what daniel quinn would have called takers right those people are they tread very lightly they are very careful they know their place they don't try to manage and control and things like that and so i guess what i would like people to do is they i would like them to pick up this book the art of not being governed by by uh 
by James C. Scott because it's such a great read. It's a little dry every here and there, and it's uh, about Southeast Asia in general, but there's a lot of other places where you could apply the same lessons and just look at um, now because... For example, the Graeber and Wengro in their book, they they were like, oh yeah, let's just create an anarchist society, and they they did not talk about the hill tribes in Southeast Asia at all, at all. And I was like, why? Now you you have anarchist societies that kill their leader if he becomes too overly ambitious, right? So that seems pretty anarchist to me. So why don't you just talk about those societies? Why do you have to use the massive mega cities somewhere nah, uh, and maybe, say, maybe all right, let's use to, those? Maybe because they're trying to sell us a certain narrative about how cities are good or something. Exactly. <laughs> cities, cities are good and totalitarian agriculture is also good. I, I think what Graeber and Wengro really don't like about the hill tribes is that they move around and that they don't do grain agriculture. They do this complicated mixture, this wild tending kind of way of farming that you don't really understand if you haven't really studied it. And so I, I think that that is one of the main reasons why they just ignore those anarchist societies throughout the entirety of their book. And no, some people say, it's the, like you said in the beginning, uh, those people, if you go to the hill tribes and you ask them, are you anarchists? They won't know what the fuck you're talking about, right? So they don't call themselves anarchists. But if we look at certain things, um, we see that they clearly are in many very important respects. Like uh, uh, this, is why, this is what James C. Scott is talking about, right? So that uh, I have one example that I just think is so funny and it, it uh, explains it pretty good what we're dealing with here. So Laos, for example, was colonized by the French at one point. And so the French colonial officials, they were so frustrated and they complained so much about those fucking hill tribes. Nah? They are, there was a village on the side of the road and then the, the colonial officials, they came and they say, you know, now you have to help us maintain this road for the sake of the entire country. So here are some tools and in raining season, you just make sure that this road is always ready to be traveled. And then they came back the next time and the entire fucking village was gone. Like the village would just relocate. As soon as the officials come and say, those are the new rules, you got to take care of this road and this is your responsibility from now on. And they perceive it as a burden. They're gone. They just move higher up in the mountains and say, fuck you. I'm not going to maintain your stupid road. Right. So that is that is anarchism right there. And I would have I have I would have plenty more examples than that. Right. Is the Spanish complained about the same thing in the Philippines when they tried to colonize the various hunter gatherers, horticulturalists there? That the Igorot, for example, was really difficult to tame them. It was really, really difficult to even know how many of them there were because they planted sweet potatoes. And so wherever they went, they just pulled up the potatoes and moved to a new place and put them back into the ground. And you just had no idea where they were most of the time because they can just move their crops with them. And whenever they're hungry, they just pull up some sweet potatoes and grill them and they have their food. So... Those societies, because they know what's going on in the valley, because they've been enslaved, ever, some of them have been enslaved by the valley civilizations, they know very well what's happening down there, right? They are not ignorant. And it is, it is the same for immediate return hunter-gatherers. The threat of authoritarianism, of leaders, of dominance hierarchies is always there, nah? Uh, that's why they have those leveling mechanisms, because they are constantly 
threatened by certain individuals, mostly men, um, who ne, try to be a little better than others and try to ne, gain some kind of advantage. And so they have to figure out a way to keep them in check so that they don't become uh, little dictators who run around terrorizing everybody. And so they work with human nature, which, as we all know, includes both of those tendencies. You have some people who are just Absolutely. more egalitarian and some people who are just more authoritarian, right? And so they handle, they deal with this diversity in human nature in a very elegant and very sophisticated way that never leads to positive feedback. And that is such an important point, because if you look at civilization, it's basically authoritarian tendencies in human nature run in a fucking feedback loop, positive feedback for a few hundred generations. And then you have the society that we are in right now. Yeah? And so what not only the immediate return hunter-gatherers, but also many of the re delayed return hunter-gatherers do, is they keep this tendency in check. They balance it out. And uh, so you have some cultures that are more on the egalitarian end of the spectrum, like the the famous Kung San, you have the Piraha, uh, you have the Baka in the Congo rainforest, societies like that who are like really... Uh, textbook examples of immediate return. And then on the authoritarian end of the spectrum, the natural human spectrum, you have societies like the Yanomami or the Karen hill tribes in northern Thailand or the Dayak in uh, Malaysia and Indonesia, for example, right? So it's not like they are tyrants per se, but they are much more on the authoritarian side. And I guess like if we are not talking about civilization, if we just exclude this positive feedback loop from our considerations then i think the pacific northwesterners are probably as authoritarian as it gets if you still have a society that doesn't really practice totalitarian agriculture uh, that doesn't destroy the health of the land in the long term and so that is pretty much the natural spectrum. And so I, for myself, I have to say that many of the societies that are more on the authoritarian side of the spectrum of hunter-gatherers, like, for example, the Yanomami or many of the hill people that we have here in Southeast Asia, I would still prefer living with them than in civilization. If it would just be a choice and you could just pick whatever life you wanted, I would definitely that pick that kind of life. Yes. Wouldn't that be great? That would we be great. It's like a video game, right? Wait, I just get to yes. choose where I start. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it would be a hard choice, though. I would have to think a lot about where I would want to go. <laughs> yeah. So I guess my um my last question for you is, is how can people support or keep up with the work that you're doing? Either you're writing, uh, which I know you're an essayist, right? And then maybe, you know, yeah. keep up or, or see what kind of work you're doing with your permaculture. How can people keep up with that stuff? Yeah, uh, so we have a website. Um, because of the pronunciation issue, it's easier if you just put it in the description. It's called fernfu.org. Sure. Um, my writing can be found at animistsramblings.substack.com. That is my little blog where I go and rant about some stuff that annoys me from from time to time. Uh, it's, yeah, it's called an animist ramblings, and that's where you'll find most of my writings. And uh, support, huh? 
if somebody likes my writing, why not uh, consider sending me a dollar or two on Patreon or wherever else, or just uh, opt for a paid subscription? If you like my writing, if not, not a big deal. But like in terms of support, that's pretty much as as much as 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 anybody can do, and as much as I could ever expect anybody to do. Nah? Um, if anybody is interested. Uh, about exactly what we're doing and eventually you know, is, is it possible to come visit you or stuff like that you will find all that information on our website uh, and that's pretty much it I guess we have we have an Instagram by the way uh, it's always the funniest thing a narco primitivist Instagram accounts um, right so our Instagram is also called Fernfu Permaculture Rewilding with a dot in between you can just link it if you want to it's easier than to say how it is pronounced, I guess, mm -hmm. and that's it. That's 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 where you find me. That's that's where you find uh, more information. What I'm talking about. I do have a lot of articles right now. A lot of drafts that I'm working on. Some of which uh, will have a little bit more to do with anarcho primitivism directly because what we just talked about a little bit with the whole delayed return like me being like an apologist for delayed return societies at least here in southeast asia i want to go into that a little deeper um I, we could have made an episode that would be a double the length of what we have right now actually because uh it's a topic that really fascinates me and that is uh that touches my life it's that's relevant to my life here um, and there is just so much more stories to tell about those people. There is just so much more examples of how exactly they are anarchists. How exactly does that manifest in their everyday life, right? Uh, there is a few societies where we have quite a lot of data, where people went there and they, in the 70s and 80s, uh, in some places here in Southeast Asia, they were still living the traditional life. So you have those amazing ethnographies about those people um, and they are so unlike what I heard for, about the people in the Pacific Northwest, right? So I definitely, in the future, I will write a little bit more about this kind of stuff, like defending some of the delayed return people that we have here right in front of our doorstep to try to just, you know, bring a little bit of nuance into the discussion and show that it's not all black and white and we don't all have to become immediate return hunter-gatherers as fast as possible but it's perfectly fine to fall wherever you want on the spectrum and wherever you feel comfortable because you can make it work if you follow a few simple rules um you learn to live with the land not on the land right uh then you're you're pretty much safe uh in terms of sustainability and long-term impact of what you're doing right yeah so yeah uh, almost, look look forward to those articles have... oh i'm sorry i didn't mean to cut you off yeah no you didn't cut you didn't cut me off <laughs> i would just gotta say i almost could you know this episode can almost be summarized as a sort of a practical primitivism in a sense as opposed to yes it's it's immediate return or nothing particularly in practice because it's like a lot of people who are primitivists are like what do i do you know exactly we just, we, exactly we just recorded with bjorn he's like there's all these levers how can you yes. alter your life for him primarily it's diet Right. How do okay. you yeah, yeah. take the lesson? How do you take lessons? Right. This. You know, yes. You and know, that is such a huge that. aspect for us here as well. Right. Uh, I didn't get to talk that much about this because it's uh, it's not the focus of your podcast to talk about what we do in our garden, but it is a huge focus for us. I just want to say right quick, 
uh, that's another thing, another criticism of permaculture that I hear a lot, uh, that permaculture projects these days, they focus so much on fruits and vegetables um, because they're delicious and it's fun to grow them. But if you ask them, can they really feed themselves, you will get a blank look and people no, uh, get all quiet all of a sudden and say, yeah, I couldn't I couldn't really feed myself off this land. And so we we don't we don't want to go in that direction. We we want to we want to do it the subsistence kind of way. We call ourselves subsistence farmers most more often than we call ourselves permaculturalists because we are interested in the staple foods, right? We want to be able to feed ourselves and I think if I would have to put a number on it, we grow between 50% and 90% of our calories um depending on the season and we could be higher than that if we would just eat more raw bananas instead of waiting for them to turn ripe and eat them as a sweet fruit. Um, so that is it, it. What what we are trying to do here is actually to show that it is possible to just move slowly, move over the spectrum closer towards something that resembles ecological sanity uh, in cultural terms, right? And it's a process, and we are still. We're still going through that process, and it's not sure if it's ever going to end this process. But it's probably going to be a back and forth at one point. Uh, no? But yeah, um, that is basically also what we are trying to do here. The the practical primitivist approach. What do you want to do if you want to go back to nature, if you want to live a lifestyle that is more in tune with the seasons and with human nature? And I guess that there is a, a bunch of information about that on our website and in my writing here and there um, about this, because this is so important. Yes, and I completely agree. If there's one big takeaway from this whole conversation that we just had, um, it is that there's, there's no need to be like completely fixated only on the immediate return. I think actually it might be putting people off. Uh, some some people who just could not imagine living like the Kung San people or the Hatsa people, were like yeah but i want to have my house you know <laughs> i want to have my neighbors and i want to have a little bit of stability yes you can you know it's not like uh once you start having building a village you are almost in a civilization already right it's a there's a lot in between those two extremes well i gotta say i think that this has been maybe one of the most i almost want to say controversial because i know there's going to be people like already jamie i love you but i know he's going to be He's going to be he's going to be fired up by this. And I know it because I told him I texted him just before this. I was like, hey, yeah. I got someone on. He's a delayed return apologist. <laughs> yeah. All <laughs> right. If you're going to do another if, if you're going to do another interview with Jamie, I'm looking forward to that uh, because then I want to do another interview as well. <laughs> well I, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to hear what he's going to say. Well, I've yeah. come to the realization what I need to do or get like previous guests on and like almost like round table them because some people are just so interested about like, oh, I want to hear these two people talk because either they agree or they yeah. really disagree. And then having, yes. you know, like, for example, I want to really have Jamie have come on and debate uh, one of the vegan primitivists because that's a whole thing. I didn't even get into <laughs> the vegan thing because I know he wants to do uh. that. Yes. Oh, that will be so much fun, man. I'm looking forward to that episode. Please make that happen. <laughs> oh, I'm trying. I'm trying. But, you know, none of the yes. vegans are biting, so to speak. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, but that's pretty much what we expected. Right. But um, no, if you if you get if you get if you can convince Jamie of that, uh, 
why not try a roundtable on delayed return hunter gatherers? Because again, I have to say, uh, nah, uh, concluding that what I what I said in this conversation is also, of course, biased, right? I cannot know everything about all delayed return hunter gatherer societies. I know a bunch uh, about the ones in South America. I know a good deal about the ones around here. Um, but then again, uh, my focus is on the tropics because that's where I live. Uh, so I don't know much about temperate climates. And so I guess that Jamie or somebody who who, who knows, who's, who's just more well-read than I am, would be able to come up with all kinds of examples that are like, no, you're wrong. They're, they also have slavery and they also do some kind of proto-totalitarian agriculture. I don't know. No, but uh, I just... I, I don't claim that I'm right and anybody else is wrong. I'm just saying this is what I've learned so far. And this seems to be true, at least for some people in some cultures and some places. And so that's kind of my message, right? To just, uh, yeah, get that, get that ambiguity out there, show that it's not either or, but that there is so many different possibilities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, David, I got to say again, this has been, it's got me thinking about a lot. Uh, this is yeah. two hours, so I know my editor's going to fucking hate it. It's probably going to be two episodes. <laughs> you We've been talking for two hours already. Yeah, we, we both shit. said, we said we've got to keep, I said about an hour and a half. No, no two hours, yeah. but here we are at two hours. Damn it. I didn't look at the clock. And I, as I said, now there were, there would be so many more things that I could tell about the hill tribes in southeast asia because they are so fascinating and i just there's so so many so incredible cultures that get the balance right that are careful enough so that you don't have dominance hierarchies establishing themselves it's one of my favorite mm. topics and i could just go on and on about it but yeah well, i don't want to i don't want to rob you of your episode. sleep no it looks like that yeah. that'll, that'll have to be a future episode as a case study on the on the on the yes on the the delayed return hunter-gatherers of Thailand. Yes. I, I have the perfect case study, actually, the Dayak, because they lived pretty much like the hill tribes up north used to do before the Second World War. They still lived like this in the 70s when this mm. anthropologist, Anna, Anna Löwenhaupt-Zing is her name, visited them, and she wrote this ethnography about them. And they are pretty much what James C. Scott is talking about in more general terms, but there you get really the view into the culture and and a lot of like really detailed information and also written by a woman anthropologist which is so much better than so many of the ethnographies that i've read by men because they have a bias right and if you have this ethnography mm -hmm. that is written by a woman you get a different perspective now she listens a lot more to what the women actually have to say to all those conversations and that again I, I promise that I'm gonna, not going to start ranting about it, but I'm just going to give a quick example, right? Um, that many of those societies that are delayed return, they might look like they are the, the males are in some kind of dominant position. And they are to some extent, right? But if you have a woman anthropologist like Anna Tsing, who wrote this ethnography of the Dayak, the Miratos Dayak in Kalimantan, she says that often you have those groups of people discussing some important issue in the middle, like the men sitting in a circle and doing the important stuff. And then the women sit around and like make sarcastic comments or like make fun of something that some one of the men just said. Now, so they they are never excluded from this conversation. They are also there. There are some leaders among the Dayak who are female, like uh, 
there are some people who have or even shamans who are female but it's not the norm but the the the, the women always have like this they always stand they they're always there on the sidelines and if some of the males say something that they really disagree with then they start complaining and say no you are lying this is not how you say it at all no? and so they give their own opinion so it's refreshing to have the view of a woman anthropologist because all of the male anthropologists or most of the male anthropologists from that time they went there and they're like oh yeah the man seems to be the boss and so it confirmed their bias and they didn't look any further into it and i think a lot got lost in translation here and i think that a lot of delayed return societies look more patriarchal than they actually are in practice and probably jamie is gonna have a comment about that <laughs> mm. but uh, i just say it i just say it it's not it's not all that bad even if it looks a little weird uh it's it, it's always good to listen to them and see how it actually looks like in their society gotcha well that's all been great david thank you for coming on yes. and providing again like a unique insight to all of this that hasn't really been talked about at all because like you said there's been episodes where it's just been almost a for lack of a better word a, a deep critique and and skepticism yeah. towards some of the topics we've discussed so again yes. this is this has been a this has been great and i hope the listeners get something new yeah. out of it because again this yes. is untreaded ground for uncivilized Yes. And thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. It's so much fun, man. There's not many primitivists in Thailand, you know, so it, it really, it feels so good to just talk about all this stuff with somebody. It's so much fun to talk about those topics. And I'm really, really happy that you had me on the show and I really enjoyed it. Uh, thank you so much, Artemis. Yeah, thank you.